Kia ora. This program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Now my Hairi Mai. I'm John McDonald Kiora and welcome into the Hut Zone on Thursday the 24th of March. The Hut Zone is Wellington Access Radio's weekly look into the stories, history, people, poems and music that make the Hutt Valley community. Tonight we hear about Hutt City Brass Band's trip to the National Championships from Trent Hamilton. We go time travelling in two local history series. We finish the Upper Hutt Library's 2014 series where longtime resident Sir George Chapman talks on his political and commercial life, and we start a new series from the Historical Society of Eastbourne, this time a 1997 interview with Bill Birch. This week's poem is from Silverstream's Angelie Toomey, Searching, and the story is from former Eastern Bay's writer Catherine Mansfield called Widowed. And there is plenty of local brass band music tonight from Hut City Brass. And we hear the close readers perform their song, Ernie Abbott, marking his death in the Trade Hall's bombing of 1984. Let's start the show with a poetry reading from Anjali Toomey. Searching. I was searching for me, didn't know who I was meant to be. Searching in all the wrong places, trying to fill my empty spaces. I was searching for me, thought it would take an eternity. Searching through the crowds of faces, slowly realising I can't fake this. I was searching for me, until I stopped and stood in serenity. Accepting. I am accepting of me growing into all of my potentiality. And that was Searching from Silverstream writer Anjali Toomey. Okay, time to start a new Eastbourne history series. It was recorded in 1997 to mark the centenary of Muratai School. Bob Birch and Daphne Logan, representing the Eastbourne Historical Society. July the 4th, 1997, and the interview is taking place at Bob's house in Northland, Wellington. So Bob, you lived in Eastbourne for your early life, is that right? Yes, I was born in Eastbourne Were you? in 1923. And what, was your, what did they name you? Robert, obviously. They named me Robert Thompson Birch. Right. Thompson being my mother's maiden name. I see. Mm. And what day were you born? What was your birthday? It was a Saturday. It was the 22nd of September, 1923. 
Were you born at home? or Because in those days, getting to the Lower Hutt Hospital would have been tricky. Yes, I, I think as far as I'm aware, all my mother's seven children were born at home. I see. Mm, that's interesting, isn't it? It doesn't happen so often no, these it's days. changed now. Mm. Yes, it has. So where did you come in that seven? Well, Mum and Dad were married, I think, about 1912, 1913, and lived in Wellington. And their first daughter, Betty, was born soon after. Um, and then there was Margaret, and then Alison, who I think was born in Wellington, but I'm not quite sure. And they moved to Eastbourne in, I think, in 1919, 1920. Mm -hmm. And then appeared June, so there were four daughters, all more or less two years apart. And then great excitement, I believe, when Bob appeared on the scene as <laughs> the first boy. Yes, indeed, a special person. Mm. And then later there were two more girls. I Lorna see. and Beverly. Yes. They had a five-year rest after me and then right. had two more girls. And do any of the family still live in Eastbourne? Yes, two of my sisters, uh, Beverly Longmore, who's the youngest of the family, mm -hmm. and June, who is two years older than me. She's June Morris. So yes. She's lived there for many years. The family lived in Eastbourne until your parents died, didn't they? Yes, well, Mum and Dad, as I say, moved to Eastbourne. I believe they bought the house uh, on the corner of Rata Street and Marine Parade in about 1916, but it was subject to a lease, and they didn't get possession until three or four years later. And then they moved to that house, and uh, Dad died when he was 86, I think, uh, probably 15 years ago, and Mum lived until she was 92 in that same house. Yeah. And Again, saying about the babies born in the bed, they both died in their own bed. Yes, so that was wonderful. Mm. What do you remember about growing up in Eastbourne? <sighs> I think it was a very happy place to grow up. I think my, my memories relate very much around the family, and compared with today's society, I think the Eastbourne friendships, the interrelationship between families, mm. was incredibly strong. Um, Mum and Dad had a wide circle of friends who I think they formed partly through business uh, but particularly through the Plunkett Society when they were all having small babies together yes. Yes. and they formed very strong friendships and they always seemed to be visiting each other and as a growing up child I developed strong friendships with not only the those parents who were my parents' friends but also with the children of those same families and many of those friendships have lasted all your life, all life really. Oh, what was your father's business? You said some of the connections were business. He started his working life in, with Larian Company, which was a, how would they be described, they were auctioneers mm -hmm. in uh, fruit and vegetables and produce, and he started working for them and subsequently formed his own business called Birch & Co, which was based in Courtney Place, and they were grain, seed and produce merchants. Oh, and they supplied farmers with their feed, bought and sold from farmers to farmers, but also sold uh, groceries to the retail stores throughout the Wellington area. How would he have travelled from Eastbourne to Courtney Place in those days? Well, in those days it was all by boat. Uh, so he'd have walked along, it's only a hundred metres or so. Only about a hundred metres or so, yes. Along from, the wharf uh, at Rona Bay. And then the 
I think when my I have very vague memories of the Duchess. Oh yes. Uh, the you twin the twin Duchess. funnel ship, which uh, when I was a small boy she was running still, but I think fairly early in my life she was pensioned off and replaced with the Muratai. Mm-hmm. And the, for many years they had the Muratai and the Koba uh, running, and um, I think uh, Dad and his mates um, probably the eight o'clock sailing. I think it was mostly on the Koba. And they had their own what they called the smoke saloon down on the front of the ship, and um, there were several little gang- gangs, and they played cards, played solo whist or poker in the in the saloon. Uh-huh. Um, and as they travelled both ways, and of course they built up great friendships. So they would, yes. Very often they'd call at home on the way past and have a snifter before dinner. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Mm. And the girls, the your older sisters and you and your younger sisters went to Muratai School? Yes, we all went to Muratai School. Uh, mm-hmm. So when you began school, there was the old infant school opposite yes. what was the post office. That's right, it's now a public bar. Uh, it's a restaurant and bar now. The old post well, office. Well, the school was on the same grounds as where the new wing has just been opened at the Centennial. Uh, it's over the road from the from the old post office. That's right. It was a fairly new building then, as I recall. Was it? Yes. Uh, I don't know when it was built, but it was compared with the main school. Yes, the main school was, was a very old, old wooden building. Yes. Uh, been there for many years, but the the infant school was. Um, I don't know its actual construction, but it, um, it was, I think, probably bricks and with a sort of stucco finish. And walls, uh, windows all along the right. north side. Yes. So they were very sunny rooms. Yes, they were. Very different from the old, the main school. Do you remember very much about your school days? Well, I probably remember more than I did a couple of months ago when I was asked to propose to the toast of the school at the centennial, and, <laughs> and then I had to rack my brains about the school, and uh, things came back to me. I have stronger memories about sort of growing up in Eastbourne generally rather than yeah. the school itself. Mm. Uh, but the things which uh, which I mentioned in my in my speech, I remember in the winter time, probably because of the cost of fuel, the, the rooms were fairly uh, spartan. I think as far as warmth is concerned. So every morning we were sent for a run around the the block, which which went went um, along the uh, Arua Street to Rima Street by what the old picture theatre was, along to the wharf, along the waterfront to our house on the Rata Street corner. The background around the block, I and very see. often we were all a lot of kids in bare feet and really? running through the puddles with the ice on them and breaking the ice. It was, <laughs> it was part of the tradition of, uh, of being, they were with being tough, I suppose. Yes, yeah. I see. They weren't. They didn't have bare feet because they were hard up. But well, I think a lot of them did probably. Did they? But it was also uh, a lot of uh, a lot of um, being strong. I think the macho boys. We to macho men. <laughs> I still have a cold shower every morning. I see. Oh, it sets you about a habit that's very healthy, I understand. How many children would have been at the school in those days? Do you remember? I don't really remember, but I guess there was a couple of hundred. Yes. And so those were people that you had known really since infancy. Some of them were, yes. Yeah. Uh, but you developed other friends. It was quite interesting at the centennial. There were quite a number of people there who I hadn't seen since 1936. Was it nice to talk to them again and find where they'd been? Of course.
I'm John McDonald, and you're in the Hut Zone on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM. And that was the late Bob Birch talking of his memories in 1997 to Daphne Logan, formerly of Days Bay. A big thank you to the Historical Society of Eastbourne for letting us play that interview. Part 2 airs next week. Staying in the Eastern Bays, but going further back in time, let's hear a short story from Catherine Mansfield, first published in 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Widowed by Catherine Mansfield Recording by Rob Marland They came down to breakfast next morning absolutely their own selves, rosy, fresh, and just chilled enough by the cold air blowing through the bedroom windows to be very ready for hot coffee. Nippy! That was Geraldine's word as she buttoned on her orange coat with pink-washed fingers. Don't you find it decidedly nippy? And her voice, so matter-of-fact, so natural, sounded as though they had been married for years. Parting his hair with two brushes, marvellous feat for a woman to watch, in the little round mirror, he had replied, lightly clapping the brushes together, My dear, have you got enough on? And he, too, sounded as though well he knew from the experience of years, her habit of clothing herself underneath in wisps of chiffon and two satin bows. Then they ran down to breakfast, laughing together and terribly startling the shy parlour-maid, who, after talking it over with Cook, had decided to be invisible until she was rung for. "'Good morning, Nelly. I think we shall want more toast than that,' said the smiling Geraldine as she hung over the breakfast-table. She deliberated. "'Ask Cook to make us four more pieces, please.' Marvellous the parlour-maid thought it was, and, as she closed the door, she heard the voice say, "'I do so hate to be short of toast, don't you?' He was standing in the sunny window. Geraldine went up to him. She put her hand on his arm and gave it a gentle squeeze. How pleasant it was to feel that rough man's tweed again. Ah, how pleasant! She rubbed her hand against it, touched it with her cheek, sniffed the smell. The window looked out onto flower-beds, a tangle of Michaelmas daisies, late dahlias hanging heavy, and shaggy little asters. Then there came a lawn strewn with yellow leaves, with a broad path beyond, and a row of gold-fluttering trees. An old gardener, in woollen mitts, was sweeping the path, brushing the leaves into a neat little heap. Now the broom tucked in his arm, he fumbled in his coat-pocket, brought out some matches, and scooping a hole in the leaves, he set fire to them. Such lovely blue smoke came breathing into the air through those dry leaves. There was something so calm and orderly in the way the pile burned that it was a pleasure to watch. The old gardener stumped away and came back with a handful of withered twigs. He flung them on and stood by, and little light flames began to flicker. "'I do think,' 
said Geraldine, I do think there is nothing nicer than a real satisfactory fire. Jolly, isn't it? he murmured back, and they went to their first breakfast. Just over a year ago, thirteen months to be exact, she had been standing before the dining-room window of the little house in Sloane Street. It looked over the railed gardens. Breakfast was over, cleared away, and done with. She had a fat bunch of letters in her hand that she meant to answer, snugly, over the fire. But before settling down, the autumn sun, the freshness, had drawn her to the window. Such a perfect morning for the row. Jimmy had gone riding. Goodbye, dear thing. Goodbye, Jerry mine. And then the morning kiss, quick and firm. He looked so handsome in his riding kit. She imagined him as she stood there, riding. Geraldine was not very good at imagining things. But there was mist, a thud of hooves, and Jimmy's moustache was damp. From the garden there sounded the creak of a gardener's barrow. An old man came into sight with a load of leaves and a broom lying across. He stopped. He began to sweep. What enormous tufts of irises grew in London gardens, mused Geraldine. Why? And now the smoke of a real fire ascended. There is nothing nicer, she thought, than a real satisfactory fire. Just at that moment the telephone bell rang. Geraldine sat down at Jimmy's desk to answer it. It was Major Hunter. Good morning, Major. You're a very early bird. Good morning, Mrs. Howard. Yes, I am. Geraldine made a little surprised face at herself. How odd he sounded. Mrs. Howard, I'm coming round to see you. Now, I'm taking a taxi. Please don't go out. And, and, the voice stammered, please don't let your servants go out. Pardon? This last was so very peculiar, though the whole thing had been peculiar enough that Geraldine couldn't believe what she heard. But he was gone. He had rung off. What on earth? And putting down the receiver, she took up a pencil and drew what she always drew when she sat down before a piece of blotting paper, the behind of a little cat with whiskers and tail complete. Geraldine must have drawn that little cat hundreds of times, all over the world, in hotels, in clubs, at steamer desks, waiting at the bank. The little cat was her sign, her mark. She had copied it from a little girl at school when she thought it most wonderful, and she never tried anything else. She was not very good at drawing. This particular cat was drawn with an extra firm pen, and even its whiskers looked surprised. Not to let the servants go out. But she had never heard anything so peculiar in her life. She must have made a mistake. Geraldine couldn't help a little giggle of amusement. And why should he tell her he was taking a taxi? And why, above all, should he be coming to see her at that hour of the morning? Then it came over her, like a flash she remembered Major Hunter's mania for old furniture. They had been discussing it at the Carlton the last time they lunched together. And he had said something to Jimmy about some Jacobean or Queen Anne. Geraldine knew nothing about these things, something or other. 
could he possibly be bringing it round? But of course, he must be, and that explained the remark about the servants he wanted them to help getting it into the house. What a bore! Geraldine did hope it would tone in, and really she must say she thought Major Hunter was taking a good deal for granted to produce a thing that size at that hour of the day without a word of warning. They hardly knew him well enough for that. Why make such a mystery of it, too? Geraldine hated mysteries, but she had heard his head was rather troublesome at times ever since the Somme affair. Perhaps this was one of his bad days. In that case, a pity Jimmy was not back. She rang. Mullins answered. Oh, Mullins, I'm expecting Major Hunter in a few moments. He's bringing something rather heavy. He may want you to help with it, and Cook better be ready too. Geraldine's manner was slightly lofty with her servants. She enjoyed carrying things off with a high hand. All the same, Mullins did look surprised. She seemed to hover for a moment before she went out. It annoyed Geraldine greatly. What was there to be surprised at? What could have been simpler, she thought, sitting down to her batch of letters, and the fire, and the clock and her pen began to whisper together. There was the taxi, making an enormous noise at the door, she thought she heard the driver's voice, too, arguing. It took her a long moment to clasp her writing-case and to get up out of the low chair. The bell rang. She went straight to the dining-room door, and there was Major Hunter in his riding-kit, coming quickly towards her, and behind him, through the open door at the bottom of the steps, she saw something big, something grey. It was an ambulance. "'There's been an accident!' cried Geraldine sharply. Mrs. Howard, Major Hunter ran forward. He put out his icy cold hand and wrung hers. You'll be brave, won't you? he said. He pleaded. But, of course, she would be brave. Is it serious? Major Hunter nodded gravely. He said the one word, yes. Very serious? Now he raised his head. He looked her full in the eyes. She had never realised until that moment that he was extraordinarily handsome, though in a melodrama kind of way. It's as bad as it can be, Mrs. Howard, said Major Hunter simply. But go in there, he said hastily, and he almost pushed her into her own dining room. We must bring him in. Where can we... Can he be taken upstairs? asked Geraldine. Yes, yes, of course. Major Hunter looked at her so strangely, so painfully. "'There's his dressing-room,' said Geraldine. "'It's on the first floor. I'll lead the way.' And she put her hand on the Major's arm. "'It's quite all right, Major,' she said. "'I'm not going to break down.' And she actually smiled, a confident, brilliant smile. To her amazement, as Major Hunter turned away, he burst out with, "'Oh, my God!' I'm so sorry. Poor man, he was quite overcome. Brandy afterwards, thought Geraldine. Not now, of course. It was a painful moment when she heard those measured, deliberate steps in the hall. But Geraldine, realising this was not the moment, and there was nothing to be gained by it, refrained from looking. 
This way, Major, she skimmed on in front, up the stairs, along the passage. She flung open the door of Jimmy's gay, living, breathing dressing room and stood to one side, for Major Hunter, for the two stretcher bearers. Only then she realised that it must be a scalp wound, some injury to the head, for there was nothing to be seen of Jimmy, the sheet was pulled right over. That was Rob Marland reading Widowed, written by Catherine Mansfield. A big thank you to LibriVox Recordings for today's reading, and you can hear more of LibriVox's story at their website, LibriVox.org. OK, time for some music and an update from Hut City Brass Band on last year's competitions. Band member Trent Hamilton is a popular YouTuber on all things brass, and he put this together on the band's 2021 experience. Hello and welcome. I have just got back from the New Zealand Brass Band Championships. This is the competition for brass bands here in New Zealand and it was held this year down in Christchurch. In Christchurch, bands competed in one of five categories. We have A-grade bands, which are the absolute cream of the crop as far as bands go in New Zealand. We have B-grade, which are above average town regional bands. We've got C-grade, which is still worth a listen. We've got D-grades, which are... And we also have youth grades, uh, which is for youth and development bands. Despite having been to the Nationals many, many times over many, many years, I've only actually ever represented two bands. In my youth, I played with the Omaru Garrison Band, which distinguished itself one year by, becoming, uh, by getting last in the D grade, which is about as bad as you can get. Uh, and the band that I currently play with is the Mighty Hut City Brass, which uh, represents in the B grade. So having gone down on Christchurch, I prepared myself for my first event, which was a solo. I competed in the open euphonium solos, open referring to the fact that there isn't an age restriction as there are in some of the youth grades. Uh, and here I competed against 11 other euphophonists. Now I didn't score particularly well, I got a majestic 7th place, um, although if you exclude the people that competed from A grade bands then I got 2nd, which is sort of a result that I uh, am a little bit happier about mentioning. Wednesday the 14th of July and the day after, the Thursday, uh, were dedicated for solo, ensemble, duet, smaller events. Uh, but on Friday we started the band events. So the first thing we did was our own choice sacred item, where we played a hymn tune arrangement of Flow Gently Sweet Afton. Uh, sounds a little bit like this.
immediately after that piece we performed this year's set work, which for the B grades we all had to play Fendel Hill's test piece, which was named Temperamental. Friday afternoon was the street march. This is generally the most hated event of the competitions, but it is uh, it is compulsory for everyone apart from the youth grades. Uh, and so all 30-something brass bands march down a course and are judged on their music because walking and playing is actually quite difficult and their drill, which is the technical elements of marching. I haven't taken part in the street march for many, many years due to my spinal issues, but this year I had the heroic responsibility of holding the sign that had the band's name on it, uh, which is an odd requirement, but that was my job, and this was a role that I took very seriously indeed. was the youth bands. They did, these guys didn't have to actually march, but it was fantastic to see all these young kids go marching down the street just having fun. It was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> Saturday our band finished its events with the own choice. This is a band selected item that is just supposed to demonstrate the capability of the band uh, while still being a decent stretch uh, musically and, and things like that. We choose to play Philip Sparks London Overture. <laughs> Thank you. 
overall in the B grade, Hut City Brass won the set piece and we got third in the sacred item in own choice, which gave us an aggregate place out of second out of eight, uh, which was a, a, an absolutely fantastic result. So the band's pretty stoked with that. The premier event of the national competitions is the A-grade own choice. This is where all of the A-grade bands, the premier bands of New Zealand, compete and present a piece of music of their own choosing. And this is always a phenomenal listening experience, and this year was no exception. Like previous years, this was won by Wellington Brass, and they did an absolutely fantastic job, as they pretty much always do. Overall, it was a fantastic few days out of town for me, and uh, now I just have a big long wait until next year where we do it all over again. I'm John McDonald, and you're in the Hut Zone on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM, and that was Trent Hamilton on last year's Brass Bands Championships. This year's competition is in July, and Wellington hosts the four-day event, with Lower Hut's Mark Carter being one of the chief adjudicators. OK, moving up the valley to Upper Hutt. Time for the last episode in our 2014 interview with long-time resident George Chapman. The interviewer is Jane Cherry. Me, I go back to my commercial activities, you see. Quite a wide range of uh, interests by that time, which a lot of people forget, you know. They think that my life ended at the time of retiring for the presidency, whereas in fact, uh, for a long period, I have this commercial range of commercial activities. So you remained busy? Very, yes, very. So one night I was sitting here, here at home, reading an editorial about the problem that the national government having with implementing their policies, particularly state housing policy, and the person they wanted to carry about implementing a reorganisation of state housing, taking it out of state hands and putting it into commercial hands and making a business operation and pouring money into it to start refurbishing all that sort of thing, was proving very difficult. And I got a call on the phone. Oh, it's uh, Minister of Housing here. We, we want you to take over chairmanship of this new company. I said, gee, can't. Are you sure? I'm just reading about you. You're in terrible trouble. <laughs> Surely you don't want me to say, no, no, we, Prime Minister Jim Bolger's asked for you. We want you to take it. <laughs> I said, well, I better have a with my wife before I take it. That's not the sort of task I'm terribly interested in, but I... So I spoke to Jacqueline and we agreed that, again, I, the party calls me. It's a task I must undertake. So I took it on. And how was it? Uh, it wasn't what I, 
I mean, commercially, it was uh, in sense of what they wanted done, I could do it. I mean, I was well qualified to do it. They ran a bigger structure and organisation. But there were, state housing is not the sort of thing that I'm interested in. It's, it's against my philosophical approach. In the early days, I was taken around to some places, and we went to one place in Poru or somewhere like that, a place that somebody had occupied and then vacated, and it was on a bit of a slope and, you know, bedrooms or whatever downstairs and a lounge upstairs. And the tenants who'd gone had decided to clean it out by running a hose in the front door and water sort of pouring down into the bedroom. Oh, no, it, it wasn't for me, but I did, I did it for three and a half years. And one day I just said, no, this is, I can't do this anymore. Communicated that with the Prime Minister and Minister of Housing. They were very upset because it's the last thing they wanted was a safe pair of hands like me leaving the job. I'd just had enough and I had other things I wanted to do. Yes, there's only one Sir George Chapman, there's not <laughs> three or four of you. <laughs> well, yes, I had other interests and uh, family interests growing mm. and that sort of thing. So gave that away. But the, uh, perhaps the important thing is, you know, the, the practice is what it was, where it was based in Chapman House. Chapman House is still there, useful contribution to Upper Hutt. All, this, all these activities, all done, well, not necessarily out of Upper Hutt, but up, the office was always the base, first base I went to. I'd go off to Wellington or go off to Auckland or go off to Christchurch for meetings, but whenever I returned for a base, I always went back to the base. And what's life like for you now in Upper Hutt? Oh, I enjoy it. It's very relaxing. How do you spend your, your time now? Oh, well, I've got, I have family close by. Four members of the family are close by. It's amazing, isn't it? Yes, and I'm very fortunate. So, you know, that sort of life... I, I live a retired life, but retired in the sense that lunchtime uh, my oldest daughter and, uh, and a son-in-law were here for lunch. And I, and we'll go out for, my daughter and I will go out for lunch tomorrow. Mm, nice. And your garden is beautiful. Yes. Well, I don't do gardening. <laughs> do you have someone come in and do it and keep it very nice? Yes. Well, well it's an excellent site yes. we have here, you know, we We've been here since uh, 1961. We bought this property from another night, strangely enough. Uh, but it, uh, we've carried out major uh, alterations to it. So you've raised seven children here? Uh, Did you? Well, through this yes. period, yep. from McLeod Street yes. uh, to here in 61. So, you know, all the family have been here. This is essentially a family home. Mm. And it's been kept like that. How have you managed to be such a wonderful, caring family man when you've been so busy? Because you're known to be a good family man. Well, I have to give credit to my late wife for much of that. I mean, we were married for mm, close to 60 years before she had a stroke and we lost her. Very sorry. So, you know, she has to take much credit but it's important to bear in mind that what we did we we, we were together uh, 
Jacqueline was a young national when I met her. We met at Young Nationals. We married from the Young Nationals. We've been politically committed together all our lives. So apart from the family, we've had a, and the home, we've had an outside interest. And when I became president, in particular, once I reached that higher level, Jacqueline accompanied me extensively. So no political arguments in the home? No, no. Well, her views were much stronger than mine. And, and that's very helpful. When we went to conferences, Jacqueline would, uh, you know, ladies would speak to her. Don't forget, those are the days where women were not quite so prominent as they are now. And, and so that was a very helpful process, all part of the uh, looking, the type of party that we were looking for. So that was in travelling. Yeah. What do you think's the future of New Zealand is? What, how, how do you think it's going to go in the next few years? In New Zealand? Yeah. One of the things that Jacqueline and I did, we, we travelled extensively, so we've seen a, I've seen a fair bit of the world. Going around the world puts New Zealand in perspective. It's only a small country of four million people. It, it's only um, a small town in many areas. Mm. So it, its future is very dependent on on the rest of the world. That, yes, and it's glo- the global village, really. Isn't yes, it? yes. It very dependent on the rest of the world. So New Zealand depends on the rest of the world, which is a difficult message to get through at times, particularly in the election year. Hopefully New Zealand will be able to survive as an independent country. It's far enough away to survive as an independent country, but it's very much dependent on its friends. It's very much dependent on its friends in, in, in the whole of the Pacific Rim, and that's important. Australia, you know, is closest, but you go around the Pacific Rim and you start on the other side, the uh, USA's in the rim, and you've got China and Japan and down into the Asian countries. They're all important to New Zealand's future. We've, we're very fortunate in the sense we're in the right spot in the world, the growing spot in the world. Perhaps where, where the new problems are yet to come. Who knows? Hopefully they're not. And we, have, we can supply the produce to that area of, of the world. So our future is very dependent on a stable world, growing economy and feeding that economy. Mm. Now, one other thing is, is, has a big question mark over it, which I don't think any of us have properly assessed yet, particularly in, in New Zealand. I go back one step. When I retired from the National Party in eight, 1982, at the National Party conference, I was given a gift, which was the tradition then of things. That gift was a desktop model, desktop computer, it was the first of its kind. That's only 30-odd years ago. Mm. Since then, sitting on my desk is a smartphone. It's much more powerful than the computer that was given to me 30 years ago. It does many more things. Its potential is unbelievable. And the pace of that change is also unbelievable. Most teenagers have no knowledge that, that the... Uh, smartphone they're holding in their hands 
was non-existent only a few years ago. And the pace of change is so great in the electronic area that few New Zealanders have yet grasped the significance of it. Now, you put that alongside what I've been saying about the fact that we're part of this whole Pacific Rim, and the future is very hard to be sure of, but the potential of the future is just unbelievable. It's enormous. So, even though we're a small country, electronics and the pace of electronics gives a real future, Mm. potential future for New Zealand. Mm. That's very interesting. How would you feel about being a young person today? They're going to carry the future. Yes, but I mean, you had it quite hard, didn't you, really, when you were young, having to... I think they have an easier time in terms of... Well, well, one of the problems is that uh, younger people expect everything their parents have. Yes, that's right. But but in a way, they, they, they feel very entitled, don't they? Uh, entitled to, yes. Mm. I mean, electronics is the classic example. They expect all the best of electronics. My grandchildren, who are at various age groups, between um, 13 and 30-something, all have far better smartphones than I have. They have the very best. It seems to be the standard, you, you know... A couple of hundred dollars is not good enough. You have to have a $1,000 smartphone to be up with it. When they want to get married and have a home, they want the same standard of, facil- of facilities as their parents have. All those requirements are built in. And they don't think their parents actually worked their way up. No. No, through a, a, you know, one house and then bought a bigger house and then a... That's right. You know. That's right. So, you know, they... You know, those factors make it very difficult. It's, it's understandable, for example, why housing is so expensive today, because everybody wants what the parents had. <laughs> Whereas the parents, as you correctly say, have worked their way up to, to that particular level. No? So the future is prospects are wonderful. No question about that, providing a national government contain, continues in office. <laughs> yes. Well, on that note, (laughs) I think we can finish. Yeah. Thank you very much, Sir George. And that was Jane Cherry interviewing Sir George Chapman in 2014. Thank you to Upper Hutt Library for letting us play that interview. Next week we start a new history series from the Library's Heritage Archives and it's on Whiteman's Valley. But sadly that means it's the end of this week's show. A big thank you to all our guests today and a big thank you to you for listening to the show and supporting Wellington Access Radio. If you have a local hut story, musician or poetry suggestion, please make contact. We'd love to hear from you. Facebook message me or email the team. And our email is thehutzone at outlook.co.nz. Now you can listen again to the show as a podcast on the Hutzone pages of accessradio.org.nz or check out my Facebook page for links to some of the individual interviews and stories. And my Facebook name is John MacDonald NZ. 
Join me next Thursday in the Hut Zone show. Until then, keep safe and let's go out with some local music. Here's the close readers featuring ex-Hutville High School musician Damien Wilkins with their tribute song to the late Ernie Abbott. Ernie Abbott was killed in the Trades Hall bombing and his anniversary is on Sunday. Hairu Ra.
program was brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Thanks New Zealand On Air for funding accessmedia.nz.